Hey everybody, welcome back to the Permission to Be podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Aaron Law. Um, if you haven't gone back and listened to part one yet, uh, don't want to miss out on that. And before we get started, uh, we just wanted to make sure that you checked out the Activist Theology Project. They are doing some great work as it relates to dismantling white supremacy, embodiment, somatics. And in that spirit, we're going to pick right back up where we left off in our conversation on somatics. See you on the other side, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Here's the thing about somatics. Which we still haven't defined. Right. I was going to say, can we, do, can we, in, in this, can we define Freak. somatics Let's and define can we talk, somatics. yeah, and can we talk about the evolution of your understanding of healing? Oh my God. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So somatics, what it allows us to do is cultivate awareness, cultivate awareness. And the more we cultivate awareness, the more we see something we cannot unsee. And the more we feel something, we cannot unfeel. And we sense something we cannot unsense. So there, I think in doing that, we become familiar with ourselves. We dig into what's actually going on. And hopefully we learn how to hold that with a lot of compassion, but also a lot of accountability. So somatics, <laughs> since we're like all the way into this conversation we still haven't talked about. <laughs> Okay, it's so okay. it's how we roll. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the soma is a Greek root word, and it means something along the lines of like a living organism. And we have truncated that to mean body. Um, I just googled it, and I was like, it says body, but in distinction to the mind. And she just talked about mind and body being one. So I'm real interested right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> So it implies, it does imply that we are a living, breathing organism. The body is living and breathing. So this white guy, Thomas Hanna, I want to say in the 50s, I'm not sure, he he coined the term somatics. And um, the work that he was doing was this thing, this crazy thing called neuroplasticity, which literally means that our neurons or our neural pathways, i.e. the way our nerves fire, the patterns that we have physically, they are plastic in that they are able to be repatterned and even new new patterns can form. And so he was interested in what kind of breath and movement work can we do to create new possibilities for movement and therefore create new ways to heal. And so he worked with this guy, Moshe Feldenkrais, who is, he, all of the pe- people who do somatic practices have similar sort of um, themes through their work. And Feldenkrais, his gift to the field was to slow down 
to notice and actually to rest. And his theory is that within the rest, we are able to integrate. And he observed this from babies too. So babies naturally when they are struggling to learn how to sit up, how to roll over, how to look around, eventually be able to stand and walk, they, in their process, exhaust themselves and then they rest. And it's a brief rest and then they start over again. And in that rest, what's happening is there's space for new neural pathways to develop. And so this is really important because I mean, you're a nurse, you could probably speak to this. People think now that in order to change their health, a lot of people, many people, not all people, many people think they've got to pop a pill, they've got to have surgery. There, there's, there's very little that's done in between like getting medicine, literal medicine injected into the body, taking a substance or have, being cut open. Well, that's Western and, culture for you right there. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so you can see how somatics goes, it flies in the face of capitalism yeah. in that the capitalism will have you grinding to the bone. Um, big shout out to the NAP ministry. Amazing work. Please say. go follow them on Instagram. Please like, come on the podcast, NAP ministry. Yes, please come on the podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they, they highlight that importance of we have got to rest or else we cannot come at this work with our full selves. And capitalism and white supremacy don't want us to come at this work with our full selves because then they would be at risk of losing everything. So I, I know that there, I think for a lot of people, somatics is still a burgeoning field and the fact that somatics and social justice and social healing are even talking to each other is like a very new thing. So, mm -hmm. um, I will, I feel like I have to do my due diligence and name generative somatics as a program that has been doing this work for a lot longer. I mean, they've been in existence, I think since 2009, but before that, um, Stacey K Haynes, who's one of the co-founders was doing this work as early as 2000. And even before that, like she was investigating what is the connection? Because to your point way earlier about self-care, I think there's something around this image of like, definitely a white woman getting a massage with like a face, a face mask or like getting a manicure or something. And this is what like, we're Man, like, Ooh, hashtag self-care. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but like what a self-care actually means is like caring for your damn self. And that means looking at yourself and like really, really digging in and going, Oh man, this thing is not okay. What do I need to do to heal this? Mm -hmm. And so like, to me, somatics is a true way that we can actually care for ourselves. And then when we connect that to the, the social whole, like incredible things can begin to happen because it is true that if you do, if you do seek to heal yourself, that will ripple out. And other people will feel that and be inspired to do that. And culturally, we can 
tear this supremacy shit down and imagine a new way of being. So I, I guess I want to name those things as far as the second part of your question. I know I, I was about to ask you another question completely derail us and it okay, had to well, do with Adrian Marie Brown and emergent oh, strategy and how it relate. <laughs> I'd much rather talk about Adrian Marie. Okay. Full disclosure. I'm wearing a shirt that I had made on Etsy that says what you pay attention to grows, which is a quote from Adrian Marie Brown's, uh, emergent strategy. And I am like obsessed with her work and her work has literally changed everything for me. And, uh, so I would love to talk about her for like 20 hours. Go. What's your question? (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I, we'll we'll get back to the healing portion of that question mm-hmm. shortly. Um, okay, and it might be probably what we end on with the healing and salvation, and and all. so we'll Great. figure out a way to bring it in. Okay, just riff on it. How how has emergent strategy, Adrian Marie Brown? Um, how does that relate to somatics? How does that relate yeah. to this work of embodiment? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, okay. I'm going to keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, great. So I guess first, let's talk about what, from your perspective, what is emergent strategy? Ooh, okay. So, yes. Okay. So what I understand emergent strategy to be is essentially looking at how emergence, which is a phenomenon in nature, to give an example, when we look at, we see birds flocking, there is an organization that happens from within the system. So if the birds flying together is the system, Mm. how do they stay together when there's not a hierarchical way of working? There's not one leader, right? They all know to go, oh, the whole group of us is going left. Okay. So we're going, we're all going left. Oh, one of us is, is crashing down. Some of us better go and be with that one. Right. So it's understanding that we are an organism that is connected, interconnected, like the three of us right now on this call, like we are like a little flock of birds, for instance. And so when we observe that in nature, right, and there's lots of other examples like colonies of ants, even people talk about the way that cities are designed is emergence. So we're looking at this thing that is emerging. So the bird's decision to all fly left is is an emerging phenomenon. When we connect that to social justice organizing, incredible things can unfold because essentially we're just borrowing from what's around us, the resources, the natural resources that are around us around how we might organize outside of hierarchy, which is unfortunately one of the only things we've understood in this country. Then we get to be steeped in interdependence. We get to be steeped in a group adaptability we are not stuck to, well, this person is the leader and we must follow them, whatever they say, no matter what my gut says. It's, it's a group consciousness. And so her work was to highlight how these things are connected and to propose essentially a way of organizing social movements that is in relationship, in right relationship with communities, 
who are organizing in the planet itself and maybe even the universe. And so the way I came into this was quite um, serendipitous, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was in graduate school, I studied dance. And one of the things I spent the most time studying was called emergent improvisation. And this way of moving together was the most thrilling, inspiring thing I've, I really think I've ever studied. And I loved it so much that when I left graduate school, I began thinking about how can I, how can I use some of this material and, and sort of begin to cultivate my own sort of syllabus around this? And how can I start teaching people this way of being with each other um, where we are sort of co-creating and intentionally co-creating in an improvisational space. And what emerged out of that was, oh my gosh, like, I think that if we do this and I connected it to emergent strategy, like randomly was online, I saw this book title and I was like, oh, what is that? It has the word emergent in it. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know who she was. I didn't know it was about social justice. I picked it up and I read the whole thing and I was like, holy shit. What if, Um. what if, what if we could connect these two worlds? And so I began to think, oh my gosh, like if people, regardless of whether they're dancers or not, could learn how to experience flocking like birds in their bodies, like imagine what could be possible. Like if we have that physical experience, that sensate experience of both leading and then following and like sharing our power, decentralizing our power, like in ourselves, then surely we can do that in our organizations, in our churches, in wherever, our government even, right? Like, or whatever new government that I'm hoping is going to emerge out of this time, right? And so within this, like, there's endless possibilities. Like, this is where I see... Like people are like, oh, I can't imagine what it'd be like if the police were defunded and uh, the p- prisons were abolished and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, well, it's all right here. Like it's all right here. We have a collective imaginal power to mm. be able to organize however we want and towards love and towards justice all the time. If that's our intention, then we can just do it. So I think that for me, um, it it was life-changing in that I was already in love with emergence from a somatic place and then Mm. connecting that to, oh my gosh, this could be, this could mean big things for social healing was absolutely like revolutionary. It was like an epiphany for me. And so Mm. that was about three years ago. And I spent a lot of time between then and now really like thinking and cultivating and practicing and trying and failing. And I'm still not there. I don't know that I'll ever arrive, but it's, it's like that practice is what makes me feel more alive than anything else. And Tommy, you got to experience a little bit of that, I think in the, in the, um, the session that we did and, and like, I think what was so amazing about that, getting to do that 
with you all there in, in that big group was that people realized like, Oh, I, I actually, I can do this. And, and like, Oh, this is possible. Like we can't imagine this other way of, of being together. Um, even though they were scared and even though they felt, you know, very apprehensive about moving their bodies with other people, there, there was this real like magic that, that almost like I could feel like, it was almost like a texture in the air. Is it okay if I tell the audience a little about that experience? Please do. I would love to hear your take on it too. Yeah. So as I'm sitting here and, and my brain's putting all this together, like as you were talking, I was thinking like, oh, this is the work that Andre Henry does really beautifully. Yeah. Like I was, I saw a picture of him like dancing at a protest a, a few weeks ago and I was like, that's my boy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but so going back to this conference that we were at and this experience in, in somatics and, and, and improvisation, it was really comfortable for me because I've grown up in the arts and around the arts. Yeah. Uh, like dancing is a massive part of my family story. We love to mm. do it. We love movement. Yeah. Um, and so I was super comfortable with that. And then I was also aware of people that are very heady and very like I want to say disconnected from their body I don't want to represent it in that way but like Mm -hmm. just don't always they don't always connect to to Mm -hmm. the aspect of them in the same way that I might um and it is so hard to put into words y'all because it's an experience it's it's not something you know I think we're so we get so caught up into trying to put everything into words. Yes. And Uh, words are just how we try to articulate an experience is not the actual experience. Right. Um, We have to be in our bodies for that. Mm -hmm. And so what I will say is I feel this deep gratitude Mm. um, for that because for me, it was this lesson that we are all one mm-hmm. on an energetic level. Yeah. It, we truly looked like birds yeah. in mass moving together. And no one person in that experience was a leader. Right. Um, and and everyone ex- was a leader. Right, right. And the experience <laughs> evolved and it grew. We went from these little groups and then we continued to like expand that into saying, all right, you're going to stay in your group. And then as you rotate through this or move through this, whatever you feel called to do, if you feel called to go join another group, then go do that. If Mm -hmm. you feel called to let out a sound, do that. If you feel called to like clap or whatever the thing is that is Mm -hmm. coming up and allowing ourselves to embody that. And it just had to be movement. There was no like, fancy dance but when we put all those things together and when I, I i remember distinctly taking a moment and looking around the room in the middle of this experience and it looked like this beautiful professional choreographed dance yes it absolutely did and i in that moment i was just overcome with emotion mm-hmm. Me at too. the connection 
at the oneness, at the at at the ability uh, in this room full of diverse people. Yeah. Um, showing up in an extremely vulnerable way. Yes. And I'm I, I'm still processing that that ha- it's June that happened back last November 2019. Mm-hmm. I'm still processing. It. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still trying to find the words. But for me, what happened in that moment was it showed me that where we place our limits, if we open ourselves up, if we say yes, if we stop thinking that we have to lead it all, Mm -hmm. um, if we become comfortable in that divine dance of leading and following, then we create this beautiful choreography. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I also think while you were talking, I was thinking these two words of interdependence or no shared power and agency. Like there's an autonomy that you are describing that I remember was a big part of what I was trying to facilitate that said, you're going to follow whoever's in front of you, right? When they turn, then you're the leader, right? And then when you turn, the next person is the leader. And so you're always following who's in front of you. But at any point, you know, when it got more complicated and complex in our experience, you have the choice to leave and go join another group. And that is a valid choice. And that is a respected choice. And so you don't have to stay inside of this thing that isn't compelling for you anymore, but you are still a part of the whole. And you are still a part of this unified whole. And like you said, within that, I think what's important for me is that that agency and that self-empowerment doesn't get lost because that is, our difference is just important as our unity. And in fact, maybe our difference, our differences are what unify us, Mm. right? So, and that to me is, is a container of a somatic container for experiencing these really heady conceptual things, but they're real and we can feel them in our bodies. The other thing that somatics does, and I think Tommy, you're kind of hitting on this, and I will say again, big plug for Stacey K. Haynes' book, uh, which is called The Politics of Trauma. It, she's the co-founder of Generative Somatics. You know, a big part of sort of their way of understanding this connection between embodiment and social healing is is actually stretching like you would stretch a muscle to increase our tolerance for discomfort, you know, and when we stretch something that is a little stiff, it feels uncomfortable and it's important not to go to a painful place, right? Like we don't want to, we don't want to like rip our muscle fibers, but if we gradually begin to stretch 
our capacity to hold discomfort in our bodies in a sensate way, which is literally the thing that drives white people's defensiveness. And Mm. it, it like that comes from a neurological place. It's a thing that drives their shame. Like it's a neurological barrier that comes up. You can't make progress when people are in a defensive place and in a shame place neurologically, like all that stuff I was talking about earlier about neuroplasticity, like new neural pathways cannot form when we are in those modes. And that is a trauma response. And so, so much of what generative somatics does is they ask us to look at our trauma response. And actually somatic experiencing is another kind of, it is not necessarily politicized. There are some people who do politicize somatic experiencing, but but within that, that, that work is all around looking at trauma and what is the trauma response in your body, right? We have fight, we have flight, we have freeze, we have flee and probably other things. Um, and so what happens to us, especially as white people is, is we freeze and we shut down, right? And then we can't move forward. And so what generative somatics and politicized somatic experiencing does is it asks us to go, okay, can you, can you notice that sensation instead of surrendering to it? And if you can notice that sensation, then what does it take to get you back to a regulated state? And how can we stretch your capacity to hold that discomfort and not go into a freeze response so that you can actually grow and show up and make progress. And quite frankly, when we are, when we are, um, defensive or in shame that shows up as what is called and known as fragility. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so one of the, the best antidotes that I know to fragility is to be aware of what's going on sensation wise in your body and, and to be aware of what trauma responses feel like in the body and to have tools to then work through that. So you can be present in this moment and actually be with what is and not what you think is happening. If that makes sense. And I mean, I didn't make this up. Like this is, this is not my work. I mean, I am, I am privileged to get to be in the stream of this work, but I would name politicized somatic experiencing. Um, like I said, Sage Hayes is one, um, Elizabeth Wolf is another, and they are both teachers of mine. And then folks who do the generative somatics work, like these people are at the forefront of this work, trying to connect trauma research, trying to connect somatics, trying to connect social justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like weave those things together. I I mean, I'm just going to own that this interview is completely selfish about all the things that I just wanted to know about what you do. And I hope that the audience is getting a benefit to it. I don't care. This is my self-care right now. And I'm drinking my wine. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Me too. Cheers, Tommy. (laughs) Um, You work, you do work with activist theology projects. Yes. And how does this all relate to it? Mm. What is activist theology? (laughs) 
Oh my goodness. Okay. So first thing to note, I am not a theologian. And in fact, um, Activist Theology Project is really a project that Robin Henderson Espinoza and Anna Galladay direct together. And both of them are incredible Christian theologians and are really at the sort of cutting edge or rather growing edge of how we're seeing that um, faith uh, hopefully get to transform. So I'll just name that I grew up Unitarian, i.e. heathen, um, <laughs> uh, like we studied all like the world religions, like at 12 or 13, I had to write my own credo about what I believed. I'd love to be able to find that someday. Cause I don't know what I yeah. wrote. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, and my mom was just so curious about religion and just always, I mean, she, she, uh, is a theater teacher, but like, I, I would deem her a theologian, like absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so she always was sort of holding those, those questions about faith and, and really about spirituality. And so I sort of grew up in the, in that questioning. And, and as a, as a, you know, as a teenager who came to understand myself at the time as bisexual and had a girlfriend in high school, I, and I grew up in, in Massachusetts, I came to see Christian folks at that point in my life as people who just like hated gay people. Like that was my Mm. experience. And so like, I really didn't didn't have any relationship to certainly Christian theology. If any, it was sort of feeling completely rejected and like these people are not my friends. Um, Fast forward, my former partner who I've talked about, uh, she grew up Pentecostal realized that, you know, also that she was gay and just because of a minor, like maybe she kissed a girl very innocently and it was consensual. She was like kicked out of youth leadership, you know, this story yeah. that we hear all the time. Um, but she did grow up with, you know, a really strong Christian foundation. Um, and so that was, that was a point of contention throughout our, our marriage really. And I was like, how can you believe that? Like a man was God. I mean, this is where I was coming from. It was so fun. Like I also completely misunderstood and never really had a good sense of like what the, the stories of the Bible were about. And so then like later in life, you know, I got really thirsty around my own spirituality and in a quest to find something to hold me really. I, we, we both leaned into a progressive church, a Christian church, um, here in Nashville and, and really found, um, a home there. And so I am one of those really weird people who like, at I think I was like 35, I became a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> which is so weird. I don't know if I still identify that way, but I think Jesus is amazing. Mm-hmm. The true, true revolutionary. Mm-hmm. The the first one to say black lives matter, <laughs> you know, I he mean, wasn't white. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think, you know, I think through getting to experience Christianity really just through the lens of a progressive Christian church in 2016, like 
has shaped my own sense of theology. And so, you know, I've been really learning about Christianity in a deep way from people like Rob Bell or, or Richard Rower or Keith Scott Bay Jones or Jackie Lewis and, and, you know, people who make, make Jesus like actually real. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think through all of that, you know, I also was struggling with, well, I'm in this amazing space, but again, it's like everybody's in their freaking head and they're talking yeah. these crazy, amazing concepts. And I understand what this feels like in my body, but we're all like sort of sitting here and like arms are pressed against our rib cages and we're all like stiff. And I'm like, what is this? Like, what's this about? And so, you know, I just became curious about like, what is the relationship between this sort of social justice narrative that flows through progressive Christianity um, and embodiment. And so fast forward, I met Robin Henderson Espinoza at a workshop they were doing called Dismantling Supremacy Culture. Um, And I learned about Activist Theology Project through really through that first workshop. And I went up to them after and I said, hey, like, have you ever thought about incorporating like somatics or the body into your work. And they were like, you know, actually I have. And, and really like I wrote my whole dissertation on the body, but again, like they didn't have the practical experience of like, what does it feel like to actually facilitate and move the body? And so through, you know, a series of conversations, we ended up deciding like, Hey, I think this could be some really interesting work that we could do together. And so, you know, for me, I feel like the, the outcast, I guess, in terms of like my theological chops, like that, I just, I don't, I'm always behind. I have no idea who this person is or who that person is. I'm a quick learner and, you know, I've gotten to experience a lot, um, since I've joined the team, but it, it's been, it's been really fascinating. And really what I come out of this with is, wow, like, faith communities are, or at least the faith communities that I've gotten to work with over the last year and a half, a lot of them are situated in the dominant culture, i.e. white people. And they Mm -hmm. are, you know, quote unquote, good white people who want to do the right thing. Um, but who are trapped inside old theological, sort of mindsets that limit them from seeing how supremacy culture really is quite insidious in their own cultures. And so I think that, um, so my, my work with activist theology project is to work a lot of times with actually faith communities and who are in the dominant culture. So white faith communities, but who are progressive. So they have an open ear to go, okay, well, what steps do we have to take to go, further to like actually dismantle this stuff. Um, and so I think I, this is crazy. I was at a, an event with Robin last year and, uh, Brian McLaren was also there and we had the chance to talk and he said, he asked me, you know, Aaron, if you could reimagine, like just completely start over, like what would your vision of a new liturgy for the church be? And I was just like, oh, wow, what a beautiful question. And so in a way, I think that through like embodying emergent strategy and embodying um, other ways of, of understanding our somas or our somatic beings that um, we get to know 
God. We get to know a spirit. Like we get to feel that we are animated by something, right? Like we get to have this gratitude for our flesh that has been shamed and repressed in, in, inside of Christianity. And so, um, I think there's a lot, obviously a lot of work to be done there. And I know that I'm sort of an outsider coming in, but I also see, I think that that serves me in a way that I don't have, I don't have all the baggage, um, fortunately, um, coming into it. And I can also, sit with the pain. Uh, I have so many friends who have religious trauma and I have listened to their stories and how that has affected their bodies alone is atrocious. And so I think that because of my, um, orientation towards facilitating healing, I can sit with that even though I don't understand it. And again, being a queer person, like I understand what it's like to have experiences that are outside the margins. And so that mm-hmm. at least gives me an inroad, even though I haven't experienced it myself, i.e. empathy, right? Like I can, I have empathy. And so I, th- I see that as my work within that organization. And that really is primarily how I'm working right now is, is mm-hmm. with in partnership with activist theology project. Mm. It's so important. I mean, I just, as a person who has experienced religious trauma, Mm-hmm. And the narrative growing up, for those who may not have experienced it, there's a narrative in some belief systems and some churches that says that our body is sinful and our body will lead us astray. Mm-hmm. So we disconnect our head from our body and we are afraid of our body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which flies in the face of, hey, Jesus was incarnated in the flesh god in a body what why are we separating those things i mean well you're painting it with this idea of what a perfect body is like Mm. a perfect body bears all the pain a perfect body doesn't have what we would label sinful desires or Mm -hmm. You know, for me, in my case, that looked like a perfect body. My male body doesn't, isn't attracted to another male or, Mm. you know, my perfect body doesn't lust for another person. That's not my quote unquote wife. Um, It's just this exercise essentially on disembodying yourself because the destination is heaven, supposedly. (laughs) Yes. Right. And I think that what we, I would invite us all to lean into is, is another theology that maybe suggests that heaven is here, hell is here, and heaven is here. And we have a choice to lean into heaven. And we have, we have absolutely, we have the gifts and the capabilities as, as a human family to build heaven here. There, there, we don't have to keep, and I think when we believe that heaven is somewhere else or after this, what is here right now, that gives us all sorts of different types of permission to just disengage from action, 
uh, from taking accountability, right? From all these things. And so mm-hmm. when when we believe that it's somewhere else, like <laughs> that is not doing us any good because that means we can just trash the planet. And that's really where we are now, where we are, we are looking at this genocide that's happening via a virus and happening via, via violence both of them are affecting black bodies and we're in this place because we have leaned into hell like that's what we've leaned into we've we leaned into creating a hell here and so i think that when we can lean into our bodies and our sensations that may invite a sense of what it feels like to be compassionate and to have empathy and then that only ripples out like i think if you know i would love it to be that if you're hurting then i'm also hurting right but the fact is that the way that white privilege has been set up is my privilege allows me to ignore that you're hurting and i can ignore i can acknowledge you're hurting when it's convenient for me and i think that embodiment and somatics has the power to pull that veil down so that we are sharing in our, each other's suffering all the time. It's not an option. Mm. And, and that we then are completely and utterly motivated to build heaven together. Mm. Awesome, Terry Brown's words, I'm, her book title, I'm still here, just keeps through that whole thing. You, it just kept saying, I'm still here, I'm still here. Black dignity and this notion, if, if we center Black bodies, black lives, black voices um, that we cre- begin to be able to create spaces that are heavenly for all of us. That's right. Yes. Yes. that we find ourselves in this moment of continued protests, Mm -hmm. this moment of awareness of awakening, this moment of expose of apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And I told you, I promise I would bring it back around to healing. (laughs) Usually at this point, we ask about what is salvation meaning to you, but I would, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, I would probably surmise that salvation probably has something to do with healing for you. Mm. How is that looking for you? And what are those spaces that you're occupying to heal and facilitate healing? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, as a, as a white person, healing has to start with me because I and my fellow white people are the owners of the problem. This isn't your problem, Tommy, but this yes. is, this is our problem. And yes. so in order to clean it up, we have to, we have to look at ourselves and 
our whole culture is set up so that we don't look at ourselves and so that we race from one thing to the next. And so we chase after um, this product or that product and everything is external. And healing begs us to, to touch the wound, to get to know it, to like maybe open it up and see like what is festering there. And the only reason I can say that with any amount of confidence is because I have done that. I have, and I don't mean to say that, that I've done it and now I'm done because it's never done, but I have at some great depth looked at myself and looked at both how I have been harmed, what I've inherited, what what is the white supremacy that I've inherited, how do I embody that, and also then how have I distributed that harm. So there's twofold for me, especially as a white person. What have I inherited? What have I learned? How is that present even in my body? And then how do I perpetuate that? How do I spread that? And when I can identify that pattern, which again takes that stretching, that tolerance, building up the tolerance, the endurance to handle discomfort, which mind you is nothing compared to what you experience, I I can imagine. The more I can dig into that, the more I can begin to change because I can't change what I'm not aware of. And so healing is cultivating awareness. And within that, you know, I think fragility comes up when white folks feel like their dignity is in question or their worth is in question. And so for me, healing is I'm going to look at my shit. I'm going to look at these really shadowy places And I'm also going to hold myself with compassion and dignity and remember that I'm worthy of love and I'm worthy of this life that I have to live. Um, And I'm going to hold that paradox. So to me, healing is holding that paradox. And, And for white people out there right now who are like, you know, I've been told to shut up. I've been told to speak up. I've been told to read. I've been told not to consume black bodies or black work. I've been told to stay out. This is a paradox. And, and guess what? Like we have to learn how to live inside the paradox because that's what life is. And so the more we dig into our own patterns, the more we can see really that like we are always living in a paradox. And so stretching that tolerance to be able to live in a paradox is a thing that then allows me to go, oh my God, like because I've been subscribing to these ideas and I've let them take over my whole being then I've done all this harm to you. And maybe it's not to you interpersonally, but it's like, I have let the system uh, get its claws inside me. And so how do I, how do I unhinge from that? Well, what's going to happen is I'm going to lose stuff. I'm going to lose, maybe I'm going to lose money. Maybe I'm going to lose possessions. Maybe I'm going to lose relationships. 
Maybe I'm going to lose work. Maybe I'm going to lose followers. Maybe I'm going to lose, you name it. Access. Access. Ooh, buddy, maybe, he named it. Maybe I'm going to lose access. And, and you know what? I'll take it. Like, I know that for me, healing means I have to divest from my privilege. And that is not what white folks want to do. It's not what they want to hear. And unfortunately, like, that's, that's our work. And, and what's not fair, right? Sure. Right. And what's not fair is that black people are dying, let alone that they experience microaggressions and small, minute forms of hatred. Like I, I want us to be to the point where we're like, for me, it's absolutely not enough to ask for, let's just stop killing black people. Like that's absolutely not enough. That's like, <laughs> it's just not enough. That's bare minimum. Yeah, like, what I want to see. That's below bare minimum. <laughs> it's way below. What I want to see, and that's unfortunately what I'm seeing in the messaging on social media and, and elsewhere. What I want to see is black bodies, black lives thriving, leading, like flourishing, mm-hmm. breathing fully, taking up space. Like, that's what I want to see. That should be our goal as white people. How do we get there? How do we get there? Well, we get there by divesting from our privilege. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to look at where we're privileged and then we have to let go. And you know what comes with that? Loss means grief and we have to experience grief. And again, it's just a stretch. It's just a stretching, a tolerance building thing. I I wouldn't even say just let go, but in the letting go, bringing black and brown people into those spaces. Yes, absolutely. Because everyone should have access, right? Like everyone should have access. But right now what that looks like is white folks divesting from the extra access that we have. So, and it's not always gonna be like that, right? Like this is a dynamic process. Like, so, I think that that's part of what I mean when I say healing. And and just to be really like vulnerable and, and upfront, you know, a big part of why I'm able to speak to healing in this deep way is that, you know, I keep mentioning my former partner. Well, we went through a really significant process in discerning whether we wanted to be together. And that looked like eight months of counseling. And through that process, we were able to stretch our tolerance for discomfort with each other and have really hard conversations and still hold each other with love and compassion, even though we could feel that maybe this was beginning to look like we might separate. And during that process, I had to do my own work of holding myself and parenting myself, reparenting myself in that, I I mean, there were days where I would write in my journal, like over and over, I will not abandon you. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. I will not abandon you until I freaking believed it. 
And I think that white folks maybe haven't had to do things like that, maybe haven't had to go through processes mm -hmm. like that, or they just haven't had a motivation to do something like that because it is painful. And I think that that's the thing. <laughs> That is... Who were you saying you were in a band? Were you saying that to yourself? I was saying or? that to myself. Mm -hmm. To myself. To myself. And why was I had that to say that to myself. Because I think that the ways, the many ways in which I've caused harm to myself and to other people have been moments where I have abandoned my core essence. And I have, you know... Another way of maybe talking about that is sin. And I know that's a complicated word in y'all's culture. <laughs> but like, to me, sin is putting a barrier between me and a source of deep, unconditional love. Mm. And when I would act in harmful ways, that puts a barrier between me and unconditional love. And so... I think what's easy for me or what my trauma response tends to be is to like dissociate. And so, and I think probably for a lot of white people, we hear this term white flight where, you know, the work gets too hard and they just leave. And to me, that's a moment where you're abandoning yourself, you know, if, if you choose to just drop it and go and you're giving in to sin. When you do that, you're, you're, you're giving into letting go of, the belief that there is enough love, that mm. there is enough at all. Mm. And so when we lean into that, there is enough. And I am loved unconditionally and I am worthy. Nothing can knock me down from that. And I can handle, I can hold your anger. I can hold your intense feelings. I can hold the freaking trauma that has been done and not get knocked down by it. And so <laughs> this is not an easy journey. Highly suggest therapy, all the things, you know, whatever tools you need, but like we have to do this. And in fact, something I'm working on right now with my colleague in the Activist Theology Project is a 12-step program for white people to be able to have a space where they can hold each other accountable, where we can hold each other accountable but work from this place of grace and worthiness and like a constant process of holding each other accountable. You know, that's an in deep process and it will be ongoing, but I think those are the, the types of things that we need. Yes, we need to read the books. Yes, we need to understand history and how it's been terribly misunderstood and misrepresented in our education, <laughs> completely whitewashed. And what, how do we develop emotional intelligence? How do we develop somatic intelligence so that we can really own what's ours to change? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, getting, it's, getting, it's getting the raise. Hallelujah. Hand. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, hanging out with us. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, I, I don't, there's not, t tell everybody a little bit about um, what you're doing right now with your new website. And also, if you don't mind sharing about Sundays. Sure. 
Yes. So I just launched a new website, as Becca said, um, it's erinlawembodiment.com. And there really you can find everything that I probably have referenced in this episode. And so the Sunday practice is a weekly practice via Zoom that actually was started as a way to hold somatic space for folks at the beginning of of the COVID pandemic, um, where we were all, our biggest concern was, oh my God, I'm stuck inside my house. <laughs> Remember right. those days? Um, <laughs> Seems like years ago. And seriously. <laughs> seriously. And always within that practice, we were interested in like, how can we politicize this? And how can we draw connections between um, our own sort of somatic practice and sensation and emotion and this, the social whole or the collective. And so that that has become more of the theme in my Sunday sessions. And so it's at 3 p.m. Central Time. Um, if you're interested, it is on the events link on my website. I always post it on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Aaron underscore C underscore law. And so there are many ways to find access to that class. Right now, we are accepting donations for that class and 100% of them go to a different organization or even individual who is working towards Black lives thriving um, and healing and playing and resting. And so highly recommend that. Oh, but I should say it's free. It's absolutely free for all BIPOC folks. So if you're white and you can donate, great. And if you can't, still want you there. And then the other project I'm cultivating is one that I kind of just alluded to with my colleague, Jeff, where uh, it's called Understanding Your Whiteness in This Moment, where we're holding a conversation for and with white folks in an effort to interrogate and hold each other and ourselves accountable to begin this heart work and body work that needs to be done in order to dismantle the bullshit. So all of that <laughs> is on my website. Awesome. I'm so excited for the the microphones to go off. Thank you so much for being with us. We got some planning to do. <laughs> yes, we do. Y'all, it has been an absolute pleasure and thank you for holding such open, beautiful, open, authentic space. Like this is the work that needs to be done. And there's so many podcasts out there, but this is like really exceptional. And I, I feel very honored to have gotten to be with you all. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. And thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at beccaepley.com.